Nima Good morning, everyone. There are a few of you here who weren't here yesterday, and for their benefit, and uh, may also be useful for others as well, if I just recap very briefly the ground we covered yesterday will take only a couple of minutes. I'm not going to say it all again, don't worry. Uh, but we are trying to understand the book of Job and looking for the wisdom of the cross in the book of Job. And we have focused in on the question, who is Job? And in particular, is he a believer? So that we relate to him as a fellow believer, we move horizontally from Job to the believer today. Or is he a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that he also points us vertically to the Lord Jesus Christ. There would be different ways of ruling out the possibility that he is to be read as a type of Christ. Uh, if you uh, hold the anti-supernatural view that it's simply impossible for such an old book written so far before Jesus to speak about him. We weren't very impressed by that one. We set it aside fairly quickly. But you might think that the Old Testament can only mean what it meant to its human author. And I tried to argue that that's very problematic with the book of Job and we don't know who the author was or when he wrote and that we should be more interested in the meaning of the words in the mind of the divine author, the Holy Spirit, which gives us a larger field of possible connections to make within the canon of scripture, still to be tested by the details of the text, but wider possibilities. And another objection to that possibility that it speaks of Christ would be that we can only think an Old Testament speaks of text speaks of Christ when the New Testament tells us it does, when it explicitly, overtly makes that connection, which it doesn't with Job, and therefore we can't with Job. Uh, but I try to argue that that's problematic because that implies that when the Lord Jesus himself and the apostles read the Old Testament and they found Jesus in the pages of the Old Testament, they were doing something rather hermeneutically naughty that you shouldn't do. Um, that's basically a bad idea, but only worked in those specific instances where they could do it. And we'd end up thinking that we shouldn't read the Old Testament the way they did. And I try to suggest that actually that's precisely wrong, that we should read the Old Testament exactly the way they did, at looking for Christ. So we set aside those objections. That left the door open then to the possibility of a typological reading of Job, uh, as well as a, a moral example reading of Job. You can't avoid that reading of Job because it's there in James 5.11. Um, so you, we have to hold to that. But could it also be Christological? Well, in theory, yes, it could be, because those objections don't stand. But you still need then to look at the detail of the text to think, well, should we embrace that typological reading of Job? And I began to develop the case for it by suggesting a number of typal correspondences between Job and Jesus. First of all, that Job follows the messianic pattern of being exalted, then humiliated, then exalted again. Secondly, that he does that specifically as king and priest, that he is the king who in his humiliation loses his crown, he is the priest who in his humiliation becomes the sacrificial victim. And then thirdly, uh, the third type of correspondence was that uh, what is happening in the book of Job is happening on the cosmic stage. It is a great cosmic conflict between God and Satan. The whole book is that. And we know that because all through the book, uh, the friends are speaking for Satan. So the conflict that's set up in chapters 1 and 2 is continuing. And we know it because as Satan appears at the beginning of the book, so he appears at the end in the guise of Leviathan, who is to be understood as, a, a, as an animal-like symbol of Satan, so that he tops and tails the book. So those are three typal correspondences, and we're going to come now to the fourth, and then we're going to turn to thinking about how this book applies to us and how we can proclaim it among the Lord's people. The book of Job, fourthly, is full of the forensic. It is a forensic story of a trial. And in that sense, Job is a type of Christ. Now, you know the word forensic. We talk about forensic scientists, don't we? It just means legal. And legal issues run through the book of Job. Legal terminology runs through the book of Job. Job feels that his suffering places a question mark over his innocence. Well, not surprising, given what his friends are saying to him. That's what they think, too. 
And therefore, his longing is for some sort of day in court. He longs to be vindicated. Chapter 6, verse 29, he says, my vindication is at stake. And the kind of vocabulary that we find there, in Hebrew, it's tzedek. We also have the mishpat vocabulary occurring throughout the book. is all over the place in Job. Go and, go and look it up on some Bible search software. Look for those words like righteousness and justice and vindication and condemnation, and you'll find them scattered widely through the book. And the two chapters that we had read, chapters 9 and 10, are a high point of the forensic in the book of Job. God is described here, 9.15, as Job's accuser or judge. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser, Job says. He speaks of God bringing witnesses against him like troops. So an army of witnesses is brought against him by God. Job maintains in the midst of this divine accusation a conviction that he is himself innocent. That he is, as he puts it in verses 15 and 20, in the right, blameless. Now, our, our Protestant ears may, may tingle at this point. We may be a little, a little a bit uncomfortable. You ever get uncomfortable when you read those psalms, when, when the psalmist appeals to his righteousness? And you're thinking, it must be imputed righteousness. I'm not sure it is. I don't think that's what Job means here. I don't think he means he's righteous because he's clothed with the righteousness of Christ. I think he actually means, I haven't done anything to deserve this bad stuff that's happening to me. I'm righteous. I'm blameless in that sense. Now, how can we understand that? It's the same description that's used of Noah, isn't it? Or of Jacob, or of David. Genesis 6, 25. 1 Kings 9. It's what Abraham is called to in Genesis 17. Well, I take it that this language of blamelessness does not describe sinlessness. It describes instead a faithful covenant believer. To be blameless is to be a genuine person of the Lord. It is to have the Lord as your God and to trust in him and not to be an idolatrous covenant breaker simply means I am faithful in the covenant. means I repent and believe. Job is confident of that. Or is he? Because you'll know that there are times when he seems not so sure. Verse 2 of chapter 9. How can a man be in the right before God? He asks. He seems on the one hand, to be confident of his innocence, but on the other hand, to fear that if he actually gets his day in court, he's going to be condemned. <coughs> he even thinks he might end up, when he stands up to speak in court, condemning himself, verse 20. Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I'm blameless, he would prove me perverse. So... Although he has this confidence in his righteousness and his blamelessness, which we know God himself has attested at the beginning of the book, though Job doesn't know that, he's, he's having some sort of existential crisis about where he stands before God. He's torn between believing that he's innocent on the one hand and fearing that it, it may turn out actually that he's guilty. It's possible that verse 21 of chapter 9 I regard not myself, could be translated, I don't know who I am anymore. A number of commentators suggest that that's what it means. He's, he's really undone by this whole experience. He's deeply conflicted about where he stands with God. Another vein of language that runs through the book is the language of answer. Remember I said yesterday, Think, think of terms that keep coming up in the book of Job. Wind, dust, ashes. Answers another one. Verse 3. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Verse 14. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? 
Verse 15, though I'm in the right, I cannot answer him. Verse 16, if I summoned him and he answered me. Verse 32, he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. Do you see this whole question of answerability? I, Job, am answerable to God. I want to call him to answer to me, but if he comes, then I'll end up answering to him. The whole thing is forensic. Now, this continues as a focus after chapters 9 and 10, though there is a high point of it, but it carries on. Chapter 16, verse 8 is a, a very revealing moment when Job says, God has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. What an extraordinary thought. He looks in his, I don't know, bronze mirror or whatever a Job person looks in, and he sees how emaciated he is, and it shouts at him, you are guilty, you are guilty, you did it, you deserve it. And it shouts at the people around him, this is what the friends are saying, this is why they keep saying what they're saying, you're a wicked deceiver, because of what he has become physically, acting against him as a witness. Still, as the book goes on, he keeps saying he's, he's desperate to find God. You know, this is obviously one of the big themes of the book, isn't it? The answerability of God. Whether you, whether you can find God in order to plead your case with him. He keeps on wanting to find God to set out his case before him. Chapter 23, verses 3 and 4. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. He's, he's like a lawyer bursting to get into court. He's been, don't you ever think lawyers have great state? Don't lawyers have great stationery? I always think lawyers have fantastic stationery. All red tape and these packages of stuff. He's, you can imagine him, he's been sitting at his desk surrounded by all his paperwork. He's been preparing, preparing, preparing his case. He's absolutely fired up, ready to go into court to defend himself. But where's Where's God? Where's the judge who is also the accuser? He's desperate to find him to have his day in court. There's actually a transition, I think. In chapters 9 and 10, he's musing on the possibility of having a day in court with God. So do you notice the wording of chapter 9, verse 16? If I summoned him and he answered me, so at this point in the book, and this is what I said yesterday about noticing the, the progression in the arguments of the different speakers, including Job. At this point, it's an if. If I summoned him and he answered me. He's, he's musing on the idea, but he's not there yet. But later in the book, he's been poring over his paperwork, and he's ready for it. Chapter 31, verse 35. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. This long defense document is ready, and he's signed it, and he's ready to meet with God. But the same problem remains. His legal adversary has not submitted his paperwork. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. God hasn't submitted his paperwork. So the hearing can't happen. It's not only Job who operates in the legal framework. The friends are operating in the same kind of framework as well. The question of human legal standing before God begins and ends the friend's speeches. So at the outset, Eliphaz reports the message which he's heard in the night vision. Chapter 4, verse 17. Here's part of it. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Now that same question comes again midway through the speeches, I think it's 15, 14, but then it comes also in 25, verse 4. 
spilled out, echoing Eliphaz's question right at the end of the speeches. How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Now, that's a significant thing to note, isn't it, when you have a recurring question, especially when it's at the beginning and the end, it's being flagged. This is the question the friends are posing. So it dominates their speeches as well. And then you get, I think, probably the trickiest character in the book, trickiest to know how you would preach the chapters from Elihu. To my mind, the, one of the least coherent speakers in the book, it seems to jump all over the place. And also odd, because he sounds sometimes like what God is going to say after him. And hard to know what to make of him, because God doesn't condemn Elihu, he condemns the three friends. So this, this makes, I think that's probably one of the trickiest parts of the book to understand. But the legal thing continues in it. But again, Elihu, he's a pretty slippery character, I think, because in 33:32 he's being very nice to Job. If you have any words, answer me, speak, for I desire to justify you, he tells Job. So he's saying, I'm here to speak for you. I will be your mediator. I'm here on your side. But actually, we know that's not true because we know how he's been introduced Chapter 32, verse 2. Elihu, the son of Barakal the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. And yet here he is now saying to Job, I'm here to justify you. But that's why he's angry with Job. That's what's motivating him in the first place. Pretty slippery character. But still talking about justification, this legal question. Actually, I think it's pretty clear, he thinks he's on God's side, not Job's side. Chapter 36, verse 2, he says, I have something to say on God's behalf. He says, I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. So he wants to vindicate God by condemning Job. So, Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Elihu, they're all obsessed with this legal issue, with righteousness, justification of Job, of God. Actually, I think we can't help but feel that the whole thing's rather ironic <laughs> because it's constantly being presented as, let's have a court hearing, oh no, we can't. Wouldn't it be great if we could have a trial, but we can't because where is God? But Actually, we know, having read chapters 1 and 2, that this is the trial. That this is the evidence being brought. That Job's trial is not something future. It's not something he's waiting for. It's what's happening to him here and now. And that every time he speaks, he is submitting his evidence because his affliction is his trial, it's his day in court, because in it he is demonstrating his righteousness. He is laying out the evidence of who he is and where he stands with God moment by moment through all of his speeches. The accuser has already very clearly laid a charge from our perspective back in chapter 1, which is, Job only fears you, because of your benefits. That's the accusation. He's insincere. He's just concerned about what he can get. Nobody really fears you, God. They just like the stuff you give them. The charge is there. And every moment of the book of Job is part of the legal proceedings in which Job brings the evidence of his conduct and his words to say, I simply fear God, even though he takes everything from me. So that when we get to the end of the book, it's, it's the final moments of the trial, really. It's not all, the trial isn't backloaded in the book. It's not happening just at the end when God appears. The whole thing has been the submission of the evidence of Job's life, conduct, and words. And then we get God saying, you're in the right. One long trial scene from start to finish. A book about the status, the righteousness, the vindication or condemnation, the justification of 
an innocent man who suffers. That's how the cosmic conflict is fought in the book of Job. It is fought in a legal key. And in that, surely, Job is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus, who was himself subject to judicial process, against whom false witnesses spoke, accusing him of a guilt which he did not have, who was himself innocent in a way that actually transcends the innocence of Job, not just covenantally blameless, but actually innocent of any sin, but held guilty and condemned, who came, as I mentioned yesterday, Job did, under the curse of the law, because cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. Galatians 3.13 from Deuteronomy 21. And whose death, therefore, raised a great question mark over him. If you're a Jew and you walk past Jesus on the cross, or you walk past his tomb, what do you think? Cursed by God. Cursed by God. I think that's why Paul quotes people who say, Jesus, be cursed. They're thinking. They're adding up Deuteronomy 21. They're thinking, he's a cursed man. He's hung on the tree. He's guilty. So the, the cross is the, the, raises this massive question about Jesus. And therefore, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is his justification, his vindication. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, isn't it? That he is declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. And it's the meaning of, I think, 1 Timothy 3.16, where he says that he, was, that he, Jesus, was vindicated, justified, by the Spirit. His resurrection was his justification. That, I think, also explains, just as, as an aside, Romans 4.25. Do you ever read Romans 4.25 and puzzle over it? What is it that justifies us? You say it's the death of Jesus on the cross. It's not what Paul says in Romans 4.25. I mean, he obviously does think that. He says that in Romans 5. I'm not saying that's not true. But Romans 4.25, Jesus, our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Well, that's a bit strange. We thought we were already justified by his death. No, he's raised for our justification because his resurrection is his justification. It's when that sentence is reversed, when his innocence is declared, when he is justified as the Son of God, vindicated. And therefore, when we are joined to him and united to him, his resurrection becomes our justification. That's the great theme of Richard Gaffin's work, if you want to follow up that theme. Uh, his book on resurrection and redemption is an outstanding account of the soteriological significance of the resurrection, its saving significance. Easter time, if you preach resurrection sermons, wouldn't it be wonderful to preach a sermon on the saving significance of the resurrection? Not just an apologetic sermon, we know it happened, running through the normal arguments. Not just a, it proved that the cross worked as if it's about something else only, but actually that it did something because it was his justification and therefore our justification. So the resurrection is a legal event. It's the thing that Job is longing for. It's the justification vindication. So we've together the four points of typal correspondence between Job and Jesus that we've seen. The exaltation, humiliation, exaltation of the king who lost his crown and the priest who became the sacrificial victim accomplishes God's cosmic conquest of Satan through the forensic context of a trial. Do you want me to say that again? Slightly long, wasn't it? <laughs> well, it's just the four points queued together. The exaltation, humiliation, exaltation of the king who lost his crown and the priest who became a victim, accomplishes God's cosmic conquest through 
the forensic context of a trial. It's a little reminder of what Zach was saying earlier, isn't it? That you can't reduce everything to justification. It's also Christus Victor, for example, and many other things as well. But Christ as victor is a major theme. You don't want to reduce your soteriology to justification. You have to remember that Christ as victor is a major theme. But of course, they're, they're in harmony. They're not in conflict. It's not as if you have to choose between the two. The cosmic conquest is accomplished through the forensic work of the Son of God. That, I think, may explain why Paul quotes Job 41.11 in Romans 11.35. It's it's sort of puzzling, isn't it? Why would suddenly this verse from Job appear in Romans 11? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? He also doesn't just quote the Septuagint. He seems to translate it for himself. So he's taking some care over quoting it. Why quote Job in Romans? Well, there's an article by Jansen which suggests that the reason for this is that both books are very much about the same themes. What's Romans about? Righteousness, justification, and its relationship to the innocent man, Jesus. This is the demonstration of the justice of God, the dikaiosune of God. Big theme of chapter 3, isn't it? but running through the whole letter. But that's the theme of Job, the justification of an innocent man. So maybe it's not a surprise that Paul would quote from Job. So in these four ways, Job is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are, as I said yesterday, many others, especially you can connect to Jesus from Job via the Psalms and especially Um, Isaiah 40 to 55. Notice I didn't say second Isaiah because there weren't two, let alone three or more. But through those chapters of Isaiah and and some of the Psalms, um, you've got obvious verbal connections to Job, and those Psalms and Isaiah texts are then connected to Jesus. There's a lot to explore there. Worth just having in your head, when when you read Job, think... Does this sound like any of the Psalms? When you read the Psalms, think, does this sound like what happens to Job? And you'll see it. But we must move on to think about how we preach the book. uh, Sorry, that sounds like I'm going to tell you something I'm not going to tell you. I've talked to a few of you about how you would divide it up. How much of it would you preach at one go? How do you handle this long book with these long chapters and speeches? It's... Sorry, it's a really difficult question to divide it up physically and to know how to handle it. I'm I'm pretty certain that you should preach the prologue and the whole of the first cycle um, through all of it, I think. Whether you would carry on into cycles two and three or whether you would pick parts out and then return with Elihu and God in the final sections, perhaps. The difficulty is that you end up preaching if you don't do that, for several weeks in a row, things which are wrong and are also very similar to each other. Um, So I think it might be worth choosing judiciously at that point. But that's not what I'm going to talk about, and you will know more about that than I do. So let's let's come to thinking about ways of applying the book in in a big picture sense. First of all, what a fantastic opportunity to preach a book which enables you to meditate on the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. C.J. Williams, in his book, which I've drawn on quite a lot and would commend to your attention, describes Job as a companion to the Gospels. In that sense, again, it's like the Psalms, isn't it? You know how the Gospels, although the, the passion narrative occupies quite a large proportion of the Gospels, don't talk a lot about what's going on in Jesus' mind and his experience. You actually find more material on that by going to the Psalms. And I would say by going to Job. That's why it's not rubbernecking to take an interest in the sufferings of Job. Because the sufferings of Job are appointed to the sufferings of Jesus. And we're not interested in the sufferings of Jesus because we're interested in pain in itself, in a weird kind of way. 
We're interested in the sufferings of Jesus because they display the attributes of God, his justice, his mercy, his wisdom. And so we contemplate the sufferings of Job to see Jesus and thereby to see the attributes of God. And I would encourage you in preaching Job, therefore, to consider the horrors that befell this man and to ponder them with your people and to lay them out before them in a slow and thoughtful and reflective fashion. Very much the way that Zach has been encouraging us to approach the wisdom literature. Slowly, thoughtfully deliberating on it. This book is full of the most amazing imagery which you can dwell on and open up to bring home the horror of what is happening to Job. You want to preach it in such a way that people feel what is happening to Job. And then let that be dwarfed by what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ in his sufferings. Because there is in the sufferings of Christ an entire dimension, and indeed the most significant dimension, that is missing from the sufferings of Job. We know that every type falls short. That's why discontinuities in and of themselves are not an argument against something being a type of Christ. Of course there are discontinuities between the types and the antitype, between a Job and Jesus. When you're in Job and you're opening up his sufferings, if you're doing a good job of it, your people are feeling the horror of what happens to Job and it's weighing upon them. And then you have to tell them, ha, ha, Job and his sufferings? Nothing compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Job was not suffering hell for billions of people in the way that Jesus did. This, I think, comes out rather well from Ezekiel 14. You may have been thinking, why hasn't he mentioned Ezekiel 14? The other mention of Job in the Old Testament. Remember how he's mentioned? Ezekiel 14, 12 to 14. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it and cut off from it man and beast, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the Lord. And then he says something similar in verses 19 to 20. Well, of course they would. Job is only one man who cannot, by definition, suffer the judicial wrath of God for the sin of the world. But Jesus did. So you preach the sufferings of Job. It's like those experiences you have when you're out walking up mountains and you, you climb up this thing and it's the, it's the peak ahead of you. It's what you can see. You think it's the peak and you're, you're not very good at map reading. This happens to us quite a lot as a family and you're climbing up this thing and you're convinced it's the, it's the summit and it's pretty hard work getting to the top and you're feeling the weight of it and you get to the top and as you approach the top, you look over and there's the real peak in the distance. That's what it's like preaching the sufferings of Job. On the way up, you want it to feel painful. You should feel the agony of Job. And then there comes that moment as you crest the top when you say, huh, that was nothing compared to what lies ahead in the sufferings of Christ. Secondly, let's remember that Job is pointing ahead to something that we look back to. And let's ponder the significance of that. Because it leads us to reflect on our privileged location in redemptive history. Job spends the book longing for something to happen that hasn't happened yet in his mind. It's future for him. Because woven into it, and it is true that it hasn't happened in a sense, woven into the book, into the forensic, is this desire for a mediator figure, a not-yet-present figure, somebody to speak up to defend him. This desire for the day in court. He's constantly lamenting the absence of God, 
I would speak to the Almighty. Why do you hide your face? Oh, that I knew where I might find him. And he laments, for example, chapter 9, verse 33, the absence of a mediator. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. But he does seem to believe that there is a mediator. Chapter 16, verse 19, he says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. So he's, he's grasping after the idea of a mediator. He even at one point, this is an amazing moment, I think, suggests that it will be God who mediates for him with God. How extraordinary as a prefiguring of the incarnation. Chapter 17, verse 3. He's talking to God. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? You, God, lay down a pledge for me with you. Because there's nobody else who can do it. This, of course, is where the famous words of Job 19 come in. And you will notice I have built nothing on them. Historically, they're some of the favorite texts to go to uh, for Job being a type of Christ or anticipating Christ. But he expresses there in chapter 19 his confidence that he will see his Goel, his redeemer, like a kinsman redeemer. And he identifies him as God himself. But he hasn't seen him yet. He is longing for something that he doesn't have. Well, what a privilege for us to live in the age that we live in. When we look back on the finished, revealed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not hanging around waiting for it. We're not wondering. We're not sort of vaguely grasping on the idea of a mediator. But we can read all about him. We should dwell on that difference in preaching the book because the longing is such a sustained theme. And for us, it's fulfilled. We don't have the sense of absence that Job had. Sometimes, I guess, we're glad that we live in the age of modern dentistry and general anesthetics. How much more are we blessed by being those upon whom the end of the ages has come? as Paul calls us in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Third thing, seeing Jesus in Job means that we don't, first of all, see ourselves in him. But let me give you two seemingly contradictory propositions. Job prefigures Jesus, so I am not Job. Job prefigures Jesus, So I am Job. Job prefigures Jesus, so I am not Job. Job doesn't prefigure me. Because Jesus is the one who has entered the arena that Job prefigured and completed the work that Job sketched out. Jesus is the one who has walked the path of exaltation, humiliation, exaltation. Jesus is the one who has been the king who lost his crown and the priest who became a sacrificial victim. Jesus is the one who has fought the cosmic conflict for us. Jesus is the one who is our justification and righteousness. Jesus is the antitype of Job, which means you are not and I am not. We are absolutely not Job. And that, of course, when you're preaching it, and indeed as you live, your life is fantastic good news. This is the great liberty of the gospel, isn't it? That we are thoroughly, comprehensively written out of the story that Job tells. It's not you. It's not me. Over us stands a great big sign saying, not Jesus, not Job. In the terms of the work of redemption, the glorious good news is it's him, not us.
So we recede from view in the pages of the book of Job. Now, this fits with something that C.J. Williams points out in his book, which is that Job is a pretty unusual figure. He's exceptional. He's pretty ill-suited, actually, to being you and me, or we're ill-suited to being him. We're not to read the book of Job and think, oh, yes, that's just like my life. I trust. We're not as exalted as he is at the beginning. He is extraordinarily exalted in this society. And he's brought down, down, down to a really awful place where, chances are, we won't go. And then he's exalted again with incredible rewards which we won't enjoy. He's not every man. His experience is a bizarre experience. It's an experience that results from divine intervention, from the miraculous. It's not you and me. It's all, as you read through Job, it's all being ramped up, isn't it? As if it's about someone really, really, really significant, the Son of God himself. So in that sense, Job is ill-suited to being a typical believer. He is the atypical type of Jesus, atypical of us, suited, therefore, to being typical of Christ. Now, I wonder if you worry that what I'm saying here about Christological preaching of Job will result really in every one of your sermons sounding the same. Do you ever fear that for Christological preaching? I guess it does happen in bad Christological preaching. You know, thinking I'm a Christological preacher is no sort of guarantee that you're doing a decent job of it. Does every sermon become the same? Dull, flattened out, the sort of automatic default template of, you could even create one in Microsoft Word, couldn't you? You know, sort of, you know, your Jesus sermon template, and every time you open up to write your sermon, you could open up that template and squash the particular text into it. That's not a recommendation. If we think that, let alone if we're doing it, we have really lost our grasp of the magnitude of Jesus, haven't we? It takes this whole book to describe the Lord Jesus Christ in all of its rich detail. He is inexhaustibly rich. Christ-centered preaching should never be dull, and if it is, we're simply missing his greatness. Christ-centered preaching doesn't replace this Sunday's passage with another one or a standard template. It doesn't erase the particular. It arises from the particular of the passage in front of you. It comes from meditation on the details of the text and their connection to Christ that therefore preserves the variety of all of the biblical texts because it's exactly not imposing a standard template on a text. Jesus is growing up out of, flowering from the specific text in front of you. So that we should delight to preach Jesus in all of his richness from all of these texts. So I am not Job. But Jesus prefigures, sorry, Job prefigures Jesus. So I am Job, on the other hand. The work of redemption is, well, we're written out of it. It's nothing to do with us. But redemption is not only accomplished, it's also applied. And so we are there in the book of Job. But we are there because Jesus is there and because we are in Christ. He is the head, we are the body, so that what is true of him is true also of us. Do you agonize over whether you should preach Christologically or redemptive historically or moralistically? Sit down and think, oh, what kind of preacher must I be? Please don't do that. Please don't think you have to choose between them. Surely scripture settles this question. It's a, to my mind, maybe I'm just naive, but it seems like a pretty straightforward answer to me. It's all these things. The New Testament uses the Old Testament in all those different ways. But with a particular internal structure between them, a particular relationship between them. The head-body analogy seems to me to be the thing that gives us the answer. 
Augustine does this brilliantly in his sermons on the Psalms. Andrew Bonner's book, Christ and His Church in the Book of Psalms, a wonderful little book where he does this with each psalm. The psalms are sung first by Christ, but because we are the body and he is the head, they are true also of us, and we may take them upon our lips. So too Job. First of all, Job is Job, but then he prefigures Christ. But we are in Christ. So what is true of Job and of Christ is true, with some adjustment, of us. So that we must preach the book of Job Christologically and morally. Hence James 5. A lot of our preaching on Job will therefore end up being, well, in some cases, don't be like Job, because God does say in chapter 38, verse 2, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? So Job has got stuff wrong in what he's said. I don't think that's God saying you're really a sinner like your friend said, but I think he is saying some of the stuff you've said is wrong. So sometimes we'll be saying, don't be like Job. But actually, quite a lot of our preaching of Job will at some point have to be and should be, be like Job. W-W-J-D. Because Job is vindicated. In what way is he vindicated and how should we be like him finally? One of the striking things is that Job keeps talking to God and his friends keep talking about God. Job speaks like the Jesus of the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When suffering comes upon us as it comes upon Job, there is a moment in which we decide how we will respond. I think for a long time as a young Christian I feared that if something bad happened to me, it would make me respond in unbelief. It's not true. We decide how we respond. In that moment, we decide who we will be. And Job keeps deciding to stay facing God and keep talking to him, not about him as if he put him behind his back. This is the great significance of Job longing to meet with God. What does his suffering do to him? It increases his desire to meet God, to see God. It doesn't turn him from God, it drives him harder and harder toward God. God in the book of Job is not a debate. Suffering is not a proposition against God's existence. Isn't it striking? There's not a hint of that in the book. Rather, God is a given for Job, and suffering simply propels him in his search for the face of God, forcing him closer to God. And this is because he knows that God is all around him in what's happening to him. So that he he experiences everything that happens to him as something that God is doing to him. It's a repeated theme of the book, isn't it? The book is triggered by God saying to Satan, have you seen Job? It's God's hand. It's God's fire. It's God who gives and takes away. It's God who says that Satan has incited him against Job. It's God's hand that reaches out and strikes Job says, chapter 6, verse 4, the arrows of the Almighty are in me. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. He reads everything as God everywhere around him. So he's not turning away from God because of these circumstances, because they're confronting him with God, and therefore he's talking back to God in them. Is that not a vital lesson as we seek to prepare people for suffering? Which is part, I think, of what we must surely be doing because we know where this life ends for all of us and we know that although along the way there are many things which are pretty there's an awful lot that isn't let me just close by asking if you've followed the phenomenon of jordan peterson at all if you're not familiar with him look him up fascinating phenomenon international bestseller book a world tour spoken in over 100 i think it's over 150 cities when he goes to a city and speaks, between three and 5,000 people gather to hear him. And do you know what he does? He stands on the stage and talks for an hour and a half. Isn't that? That shouldn't be happening. What's his message? Well, he says, suffering is a major part of the structure of reality, and it's tainted with malevolence. 
and people go to hear him. Why do they do that? Because they know that in the end, the sedative effects of Netflix wear off. The comforting Snapchat, Insta, TikTok feeds don't help us in the face of the suffering that comes to all of us. And there is a consciousness among people that they need help, and Peterson is offering some kind of help. But what will truly help them is not the symbolic Jesus of Jordan Peterson's psychology, which is, as far as I can tell, what he believes in, but the objective historical king who lost his crown and the priest who became the victim. You may already be in the wilderness, and it's certainly coming to all of us. And when it comes, it is only this Jesus, the Jesus of the book of Job, who can truly help us. And in that wilderness, he will become supremely precious. I find that famous quotation from McChain so striking. You will never find Jesus so precious as when the world is one vast, howling wilderness. Then he is like a rose blooming in the midst of the desolation, a rock rising above the storm. Your people are saying to you, Sir, we would see Jesus. Please don't dangle before them the vapid baubles of inanity. Don't you dare entertain your people in your preaching. Take them instead to Jesus. Burn the candy floss out of your sermons and fill them with the Jesus of the book of Job. Show them in the pages of this book Jesus in this bleak, dark, agonizing book. And then show them the glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that the Lord Jesus is for us in the midst of this painful world. We pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on him and what he has done for us, which we do not have to do for ourselves. And we pray then that you would help us to learn the lessons of the book of Job for our own suffering, to fix our eyes on him, to see his suffering, his glory, and to find in him the comfort which only he can give us. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Nima.